and welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 23 on the AFI Top 100, 1940s, The Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath. Based on a novel, as I'm sure many of our listeners know. Yes. And, uh, well, that's kind of a bleak one. Uh, well, I, you know, had heard it was going to be a happy-go-lucky tale, a comedy of sorts. <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite turn out that way, I don't think. No, this one was not a, uh, not a fun ride, I'll say that. Well, why don't you take us on a fun ride with a plot synopsis? (laughs) So The Grapes of Wrath is the story of Tom Joad and his family, farmers from Oklahoma, forced from their homes due to the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. The film begins with the return home of Tom from prison, where he was sent for homicide. Only four years, he got parole. That's alarming. On his way home, he meets Jim Casey, a former preacher. Casey and Tom go together to find the Joad family home empty except for Muley Graves, who explains that the farmers are being forced from their land and that the Joads are at Tom's uncle's home. Tom and Casey find them the next day, and the family packs their entire home into a dilapidated truck and heads out for California to find work. Casey joins them, of course. The trip on Route 66 is harrowing, and Tom's grandfather soon dies. At a camp along the way, the family is warned by a man who came from California that it is not what it is promised. Tom's grandmother dies, and his brother-in-law deserts the family, along with eventually Tom's brother. The other camps they find are not very prosperous either. During a scuffle at one of them, Casey is arrested in order to save Tom from being arrested by the police. The family eventually make it to the Keene Ranch in California, where they are offered work and put up in basically a shack. But the conditions are really not very ideal, and the company store is extremely overpriced to the point where they can almost barely not afford to live. Tom finds a group of workers striking outside the ranch, and they include Casey. When this meeting of men is discovered, Casey is killed in the scuffle, and Tom kills a man in defense of Casey. Due to a facial injury Tom receives, the authorities will be easily able to identify him as the murderer, so the family flees with Tom hidden in the truck. They escape to another camp, this one run by the Department of Agriculture. This camp is well run, it's fair, it has indoor plumbing, it's clean, the family settles in. Later, at work, Tom learns from his employer that men from the town plan to start a fight at the weekly dance in order to create cause to run the people from the camp out of town. Tom and the other leaders at the camp prepare for this and prevent any scuffle, foiling the plans of the townspeople. However, the police come looking for license plates one night, and Tom realizes that he's going to be arrested for murder. He sneaks out late at night, but he talks to to his mother just before leaving, promising to devote his life to social justice. Shortly after, the rest of the family packs up and leaves for work in Fresno, full of cautious optimism. Our main character, Tom, played by Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda, uh, this is he's a regular now for us. <laughs> yes, yeah, his second appearance, right? Yes. He was first in 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men, yes. And RIP his son, Peter Fonda, who we know from Easy Rider. He puts in a good performance in this film. I think so, too. I agree. Also, 
character puts in a great performance, Muley. Yes, Muley. Um, Muley is played by uh, John Quaylen. Don't know what else he's in, but he was Casablanca. Oh, he's in Casablanca. He has a a very small bit part in Casablanca, but I recognized him. I said, oh, I know who you are. Who else? Another character. The Department of Agriculture. I don't know what you'd call him. Superintendent, maybe? Yeah, at the at the camp. He's from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh yeah. You're right. So a couple of regulars in yes. this one. I think they all do a great job. I think it takes some adjusting, getting used to the accents. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and when they go to that diner in New Mexico, for some reason it's like nineteen twenties flapper New York absence. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting set of dialects that we enjoy throughout this film. But beyond that, this is a film that I can really get behind because it has a lot of dialogue that's heavily thematized through the actions of the plot, and so everything seems to match well together. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. I think that in general, this this is a a breath of fresh air for us because this really, I think overall is just a well-made film. Uh, you know, we've got a pretty good cast, uh, the, we've got a, a pretty straightforward, um, and, and interesting plot. The cinematography is very interesting. Um, uh, you know, and, and holds up pretty well, although we'll talk about that later. Yeah. I, I think that this is just all around a great film and it's got a, a pretty interesting political message. Right, and to that end, I've chosen a pivotal scene for us. Yes. Something rather unusual. I picked one of the final scenes of the entire film. It's that mm-hmm. one where Tom is speaking to his mother. And ah, yes. He's basically becoming Batman. Mm-hmm. He's becoming the knight is kind of my thing. I think I he was... says, doesn't he say, um, I, I'll, I'll be in the dark. Yeah, he'll be out there for good and for ill. It was a very Christian Bale Batman moment. Yes, very much so. But I guess we'll be able to listen to it here in just a second. Yeah, so I've set it up. Let's go ahead and listen. We'll talk about it after. You're not even to kill nobody. No, Ma, not that. That ain't it. It's just, well, as long as I'm an outlaw anyways, maybe I can do something. Maybe I can just find out something. Just scrounge around and maybe find out what it is that's wrong. And see if ain't something can be done about it. I thought it all out clear, my. I can't. I don't know enough. How am I going to know about you, Tommy? Why, they could kill you, and I'd never know. They could hurt you. How am I going to know? Well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. 
And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, Tom. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. The reason I chose this scene is because of what you said just a moment earlier about mm-hmm. the social mission of a film like this yeah. through its one of its main protagonists anyway, Tom. Mm-hmm. I think this film does a really good job at positioning the world in such a way, the world being this place of degenerating conditions, conditions mm-hmm. brought on by a faceless capitalist machine, mm-hmm. which, speaking of cinematography and thematization, those caterpillar tractors with the people wearing the faceless masks, right? There's some sort of, yeah. not gas masks, they're reminiscent of gas masks, but they're, they're dust masks of some kind. Yeah. And they're just bulldozing these people's way of life. Yes, literally their homes. I mean, they, they literally knock over a house with this fucking caterpillar. Right, that's Muley's flashback here, which was a, another runner for a pivotal scene because I think they hit that hard and well. Mm-hmm. But this shows how one people, let's call it, let's just say Americans broadly, are splintered into these smaller factions in this idea of our people, which is referred to many times in the film gets broken down further and further until it's just the people at arm's reach really and that's in that muley flashback also where he says you're one of our people he says my people effectively are my kids and my wife who i've got to feed exactly so i'm gonna be here and bulldoze your house because that's just the reality of things right so it's this wage slavery and most of these characters are sharecroppers or were sharecroppers till they get driven Mm -hmm. off that create these conditions and they're broken down into this really alienated, isolated, modern condition. And Tom yeah. is the one of the few characters, and Maude does this at the end as well, right? Sort of echoing Tom, yeah. that argues for unity, right? Collectivity in the face of these conditions by looking for social justice. And that camp is a good example, but Tom has to operate outside of the law because he has now murdered two people. Right. Uh, yes. It's easy to forget that Tom is a murderer. <laughs> so his first murder, which we learned a little bit about at the beginning of the film, he kills a guy who drew a knife on him. And yeah, he did so get struck by the knife. So that was only, I would say, that's kind of self-defense in that yeah. way. Yeah. Maybe Tom's just really good at killing because then someone kills Casey, who is the first person Tom calls the lantern that has these ideas of social justice. This, Yeah. I wouldn't say, what is he? He's a, he was previously a preacher, but. Yeah, an ex-preacher, right? Uh, I guess he's lost his faith. He's lost his faith in the in the face of, I think, this modern condition. But yeah. he's found something more important, which is arguably the collective well-being of just people in general. Mm-hmm. But he gets killed, and then Tom just immediately reacts and does a revenge killing, effectively. Yeah. And kills one of the cops. So, yeah, he's he's not able to follow the legal means of social right. reform. So he's right. going to be out there being Batman. Whereas Ma argues for a more downtrodden approach in that these are people that are getting beat up, but they are 
steady. Right? They will right. continue to exist. She says, rich men are born and die and their kids turn out bad and they'll disappear. But our people, they're basically the rocks that everyone steps on, but they'll always be yeah. there, right? They're secure. Which, I mean, is kind of an interesting ending, right? Which is where Ma basically says, right, that the you the there will always be poor people you need poor people you can't live you know you someone needs to pick fruit somebody needs to you know dig ditches uh which is true but it, she she takes while it seems somewhat optimistic in that like they will survive there will always be poor people um or people like them there there's not a there's not a bright and shiny and insight. I mean, survival is is what's is what's going is sort of what she's looking forward to. Um, so while again, I think it's it's very sort of like cautiously optimistic. Like you you, you feel good at the end, but in reality, you know, I think you need both Tom and Ma. You need, I guess, you need people who who can endure right and who are willing to endure and 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 that. But you also need these sort of people Radicals. like. Yeah, radicals that exactly that work outside of the uh, of, of the scheme, right? Because if this movie shows us anything, it's that you know capitalism uh, ignores laws, um, it cares little about people, right? Uh, and it consumes, 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 and we see the family be consumed, right? Uh, as it shrinks, I think you put it really well as pointing out that by the end, the only people that are their people um, are are the people that they can physically touch. <laughs> mm-hmm. It really feels like the thesis of this film is antithetical to the American dream. Mm-hmm. It's not the case that these people are going to go out and make their fortune in the West. It doesn't happen. That time has no. passed. Yeah. What this is, is a group of people who are becoming the cogs of the machine a machine that won't break down it's capitalism but you're still just an instrument for someone else's wealth so ma takes that as a positive that we will survive we will endure but it's not optimistic at all just to be merely surviving right but i think you're right if we take the ideas of ma and tom together as long as a people a unitary people survive even in terrible modern alienated isolated degenerated conditions and you have toms out there working for reform outside the system maybe at some point there's a crack for those people to resurge yeah and i don't know how likely that is right i'm not sure that's my philosophical attitude towards the world necessarily (laughs) but i do think that's what the film is kind of getting at and it's compelling i mean i think narratively speaking you go along with it because there's a reason behind it and you can kind of see why that makes sense or how that might institute change at some point. Yeah. But again, I don't know how feasible that is. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I don't think that it offers an actual realistic driver of social change at all. And in fact, I think that it leaves room for a sort of dangerous misreading of the final monologue that Ma Jode gives, right? Because at the end of the day, like I said, she, her final monologue is to say that like, we will survive. We will survive. And surviving is, is not 
always, you know, very pretty, as this movie shows us, right? You know, you can't just keep your nose to the grindstone and work because, as again, as this film sort of shows us, there are people with more power than you that don't care and will undermine you um, when you do things like that. So it is, it's very hard to sort of pin down whether this is this is a fairly progressive film or or if it isn't you know what i mean i think there's one thing further we can look to in that final speech by ma Mm -hmm. at the end of the film in that there's a gendered aspect to this as well Mm -hmm. she talks about how men live in jerks right maybe fits and starts a little more modern of a term the idea that these big changes these big reversals in fortune that's the moments or those are the moments in when men are alive and they're living it's when they're making Mm -hmm. choices when they feel like they're contributing to something where whereas women she says see life as river right as a continuous thing there are eddies and swirls and maybe waterfalls but it's all one part all one big scheme of things and that is to say that they're more accustomed to change i think is how she puts it Mm mm-hmm and so that endurance, you know, that literal definition of endurance, yeah. is is gendered. And I think there's, there can be something progressive about that notion if we say that more people should live in that feminine register, the idea that this is all part of one bigger thing, similar to the way in which Tom talks about everyone being part of this one bigger soul, yeah. if we stopped fighting in these fits and starts these moments these jerks then it feels like there could be fewer eruptions fewer explosions of violence or hatred yeah because realistically the sense that i think the film gives us is that even before everything went downhill the jode family is not really living a great life you know what i mean The, Mm -hmm. the the life they're living is not the, the the american dream um but of course when things go bad then you know for 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 pa in particular you know he it, it's the end of the world right whereas ma seems to understand that like it's been it's just all it's all been bad uh this is just a little worse right now and it might get a little better later but it's all bad and and so maybe at the end of the day the the good work that this film does is to point out that being poor sucks and being poor isn't necessarily your fault, right? It none of the characters we see in this film are are poor because they did stupid things, really, um, or anything that you could blame them for, except for maybe you know Henry Fonda like, murdering people. Well, one could also make the argument that his conditions for murdering someone are because of poverty. Because of exactly right, so he's he's sort of forced into that. Uh, because what else is he going to do? So at the very least, right, we can see this as a film that's, that shows poverty as something that is that is not a choice or is not uh, because of the result of, you know, stupidity or immorality or whatever. It is built into the system, as, as Ma seems to show us at the end. You can't wipe out the poor people. You need poor people uh, to do jobs that wealthier people don't want to do right and the and that seems to be a fact of capitalism you need people to be cogs in the machine as as you as you put it matt and that's kind of distressing to to watch right yeah and i think the movie explicitly tells us this in other places well when they 
stop to get gas from the two gas attendants. They drive off, and the two attendants say, I don't know why anyone would choose to live that way. Right, yeah. So through their voice, we're supposed to see just how wrong they are. Like, yeah. What part of that life do you think these people have chosen? Like, they can't right. just get a job like you can. They don't come from the same place. They don't have the same background, same skill set, same anything, right? They are yes. a foreign element. Everyone knows them. Everyone's They're marked as Okies everywhere they go. Yeah, yeah. So there is this idea of difference and i guess our protagonists combating that by trying to integrate and that's a obviously incredibly uphill battle but i think it's one that needs to be fought right yeah no i think you're right yeah so i so i think at the end of the day this film is fairly progressive right i mean in just in exposure and it's sort of undermining of the american dream yeah absolutely because I don't think we see a single character in this film that can achieve the American dream, really. There are people that are desperately clinging to, to their small shade of the American dream, right? Um, and then there are the huge, faceless, wealthy people. Um, but, but everybody struggles in this. Nobody, I think, is, is having a good time, really, uh, at all. I think maybe this is a good place to turn to our three questions. Yeah, I think so. Before that, though, let's talk about Anchor. Sure. So, on to three questions. Mm-hmm. What do we owe to this film? What do we owe to this film? Well, you know, for what it's worth, I... And maybe it's kind of inappropriate because this is a very sort of solemn film, but it reminded me a lot of the Beverly Hillbilly. <laughs> I don't think that's wrong, right? I mean, I think people get or pull out or pull apart whatever they want from media. And I could easily see how something like that could have spun out of this. Yeah. I, so, so I wonder if maybe there is, you know, this film is such a uh, sort of iconic, you know, portrayal of middle American poverty that like when you think of, you know, sort of hillbillies or, you know, or caricatures of, uh, you know, of impoverished people, I think this is what you sort of like. It reminds me of cartoons, you know, all the, with all the stuff packed up onto the car, you know, is, is I feel like that's like straight out of the Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. And so I think that that, that maybe gets ripped right from, from this in a lot of ways. Yeah, I could easily see that. And isn't the thing with the Beverly Hillbillies is that they're like rich, right? Because of oil yes. or something. Yes. So this would be inverting that or keeping the same identity Although change the material fortunes of this. People. Yeah, it's it's sort of a uh, fish out of water story. It's kind of the opposite of this story, right? If the if the Jode family had made had made it rich, how ill fitting they'd be in that society. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I can see a direct through line there. I don't think that's a big stretch at all. Yeah. I also want to think about death of a salesman here. Yes. 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 I can make the argument and say that it is a film, use the Dustin Hoffman version, which yeah. I really do like. But obviously I'm thinking about the play and the illusion of the American dream that we see in that media as well. You know, and it doesn't come that much longer after this film, only a few decades, right? When is Death of a Salesman published? No, it's only it's 1949 is Death of a Salesman. So actually not very far from it at all. Nine years after this, yeah, I think that there's a lot of that visible in Death of a Salesman. Uh, it, I think it makes a very similar um, 
argument about the state of the American worker and the state of the American dream. I think that's a, a fantastic connection. And I think if we're to make a grand sweeping gesture, as Dr. Ben Dixon always <laughs> talks about us doing. Yes. We could also, we've been thinking a lot about these Vietnam era films mm-hmm. and how they seem to have a certain idea. We have the deconstructive Westerns coming around those times. We have something like Easy Rider, Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter. These things that, these films, these media that are trying to disillusion people of the idea of a up-and-up America, a land where freedom is possible, a land where people make choices, a land where people live meaningful lives. I think in this late 30s or early 40s era, we see a lot of the effects of the Depression. We see a lot of the pulling the curtain back on the American dream. Yeah. So that's something I'm entertaining right now. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but I feel like this is a film that would push us toward that interpretation. Yeah, I think it I think you're right. I think it's teeing up a lot of the uh disillusionment we see in the in the 70s films. And I think that we, you know, by the time we've hit the 1940s, we have moved away in in many ways um from the kind of nation building work that art and literature has done for for a long time in American in American history, right? Because so much of the 19th century is about you know, establishing some sort of American uh, literature, some sort of American art, um, you know, lauding America, create a myth building, right? Um, and I think by the 1940s, because of things like uh, the Great Depression, um, the imminent World War, uh, you know, World War, the previous World War uh, from not terribly long before, you know, mm-hmm. I think it, 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 we, we can start to see how people are, are saying, okay, we, this is established enough that we can criticize it and we can really seriously criticize it. Yeah, so let's ask our second question. Does this film hold up? I think so. And, and honestly, I think that it's in a lot of ways really, really timely right now in, in the midst of, you know, our current economy which is both sort of strong and not right like there there is this sort of understanding that the the numbers are strong and there are people who are are doing well in the economy right now but a lot of people are losing and a lot of people are doing gig economy sort of jobs right Mm -hmm. um and so i do think you know and, and and of course there is a sort of political move right now towards more democratic socialism more communistish ideas communistic i don't know whatever um, and I think that this this film really is arguing for for you know the American version of socialism that that comes out uh, in things like the New Deal and and so on. I think it's timely. I think it's you know yeah. Yeah, I definitely think we've come maybe not full circle, but the same things that this film is talking about we are getting here in 2019 as well. So yeah, I agree. It holds up thematically in that way. Visually, I think it holds up really well. I'm yeah. thinking of that scene where they find Muley in the abandoned house at night. Just how well lit and how well done that is. Yes. I do think there are some small complaints, like infinitesimal. Mm-hmm. Like when they're walking around outside and talking loudly, you can hear the echo on the sound stages. Yeah, because they're on a sound stage. <laughs> so there's that, but I think largely everything holds up. There are not any effects that age poorly of course because everything would be practical and even then there's not a whole lot they're driving a truck most of the time appears to be a a real truck (laughs) (laughs) 
So I don't think there's anything technically that fails in this. And yeah, it's black and white, which also helps a lot in a lot of ways, which we've covered ad nauseum by now. Yeah, I, and I think that that's, you know, the, the black and white here does exactly that, right? It hides most of the time that they're on the soundstage. And I think that in average viewers, maybe not even going to notice that. And the and, and just the way that, you know, they, they set up the the use of light and shadows with the with the black and white technology mm-hmm. um, they really take advantage of of how that technology works right to set up some some pretty cool and and pretty beautiful shots uh, throughout I agree so let's ask our final question do we care about this film um, I think so if only because it is one of the few films that has a one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me, given its contemporaneity with our own time. Yeah. It seems like you can watch this film anytime from 1942 today and pretty reliably connect with it as an American living in whatever condition you're living in. Yes, unless you're Ivanka Trump, then you're probably not going to understand it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that for for the the majority of Americans, there there is something to be taken away from this. Uh, basically, since it's been made, you're right. I think that yeah, I think that it it's the the issues it deals with. Are, are issues we are still working out and probably will continue to work out for the next, you know, 60 years, 70 years, maybe even the next 100 years. Who knows? Hopefully not. Hopefully we're still not fucking this shit up for 100 more years. Oh, I've seen humanity's track record. I don't know. Yeah. Well, all that time's ahead of us. <laughs> but this episode is now behind us. We are out yes. of time. So next time on AFI Top 100, we'll be back with 1959's Some Like It Hot. Some like it hot. Do you like it hot, Matt? I don't know. Marilyn Monroe's in that? Yes, she is. That's about all I know about the film. So, until that time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. We'll go on forever, pa. Because we're the spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.